Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 103rd edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B, the wolf. And as usual, I will be joined by my partner in crime from the East Coast of the U.S., Gary Action Jackson. And hope you guys had a time to tune into last week's episode on the Colts' new record, Under the Midnight Sun. It's kind of a return to form from that mid-80s sound that they were so famous for on the Love and Electric albums. And actually, as this is released, they are wrapping up a small West Coast tour of the U.S. in California, I think Arizona maybe. And I hope all you rock and rollers have a chance on the West Coast to see them. I think they did several dates in Washington State, in California, uh, and in Arizona there. So I hope you had a chance to check that out. So be sure you pick up that Under the Midnight Sun record and give it a listen. I think if you're a cult fan, you will like it. This week, we're kind of going back to our hard classic rock roots. Everyone who grew up in America in the 70s and 80s, like Jackson and I did, they know Blue Oyster Cult. And you know Blue Oyster Cult because of a few songs that were radio hits. Namely, Don't Fear the Reaper, which came off 1976's Agents of Fortune. Namely, Burning for You, which came off 1981's Fire of Unknown Origin. And then maybe Godzilla, which is always popular around Halloween time. Another big reason we knew who Blue Oyster Cult were was because of Mike Damone, the famous scalper from Fast Times at Bridgemont High, was dealing his wares one day in the wall, and a kid comes up to him and says, Got any Blue Oyster Cult? No, I don't have any Blue Oyster Cult. I ate 34 pairs last time around. Where were you? I was this close to working at 7-Eleven, you know. That, and of course, the always popular Cowbell with Christopher Walken's kit on Saturday Night Live, the recording of that famous song, Don't Fear the Reaper. All these things have burned Blue Oyster Cult legend into our head. The fact of the matter is, Blue Oyster Cult leaves a pretty big legacy. They're a pretty amazing band that are still going today. They were very stable all the way throughout the 70s. They released record after record, some going gold, some going platinum. But for the most part, no one knows them outside of Don't Fear the Reaper, Burning For You, and Godzilla. That's it. So we decided we wanted to talk more about Blue Oyster Cult and learn more about them. And so we enlisted the help of prolific rock writer Martin Popoff. Martin has written dozens of books, literally over a hundred books, on some of the biggest rock names of all time. He currently has a beautiful book on David Bowie out that you can check out. You go to www.martinpopoff.com. But he is one of our Pantheon podcast brothers. He has a great show called History in Five Songs, where he basically takes a concept and then he gives you snippets of the five songs that really kind of embody what he's talking about on that show. It's a great show. He does it himself. Sometimes he has guests. Uh, and you can check that out wherever you get your podcast. And like I said, he is a member of the Pantheon podcast family, where we have, I don't know, almost 100 podcasts, really all on music, not all rock music, but there's something in there for everybody. And we're glad to welcome Martin on, as we have been welcomed on Jay, uh, the Hook Rock show in the past, as we have been welcomed on Chrissy Alexander Hallberg's Rock is Lit show, and we've had her on our show. And we've been on Paul Stevenson's Vintage Rock Pod and This Day Rocks, and he has been on our show. Uh, and of course, we've had the wonderful Kiss Kings themselves, Tom and Zeus of the Shout It Out Loud cast, who are recently on Kiss Cruise 11. And they've got a couple of shows out on their adventures on the high seas with Kiss and the other rockers and Kiss fans. You want to check that out. But we're proud to be part of Pantheon Pods and to support our friends and family there. Also proud to be sponsored by RareVinyl.com. Based in the UK, guys, look, I've been to RareVinyl.com's offices, their warehouses. It's amazing the care they take to procure these records from the past, first editions, mint condition records. So whatever you might be looking for, you're looking for one of the first few Blue Oyster Cult albums, you're looking for that rare European single release, whatever it is, go to RareVinyl.com and use code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get 10% off. Not only your first order, but every order you make with them. The holidays are coming up. You want to find some of that rare first edition stuff or hard to find LPs, seven-inch singles, whatever it might be. Maybe you're looking for an old tour program. Go to RareVinyl.com. Use code PODCAST. They will ship it with incredible care anywhere in the world to you, rarevinyl.com or eil.com. So back to Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, I knew Don't Fear the Reaper. I knew Burner for You. I knew them from Mike Damone and Fast Times at Richmond High. I also knew them from the movie Heavy Metal, the animated Canadian feature coming out in the early 80s with a killer soundtrack that included music from Blue Oyster Cult. And they actually did a couple of extra songs 
for the album that ended up making it on Fire of Unknown Origin, but didn't make it in the movie or onto the soundtrack. So we enlist Canadian Martin Popoff to talk to us about Blue Oyster Cult, what they meant to him in his life, and how do you position it? Because look, they're an incredibly stable band. The band is Buck Dharma, or Don Roser is his real name, manager and lyricist Sandy Perlman actually gave them some funky names in the late 60s. And the only one that really stuck was Buck Dharma. Uh, but he's the lead guitar player and the lead singer uh, on many songs, uh, lead songwriter on many songs as well. Eric Bloom is kind of his co-captain. He sings probably the majority, if not the plurality of the songs. He's a guitar player. He's a keyboard player. Uh, they had the Bouchard brothers, Albert and Joe, who are the rhythm section, who are also great singers and songwriters in their own right. And Alan Lanier, who's a keyboard player and backup guitar player and a songwriter and a singer. All of them were very talented. And from the late 60s, all the way into the early 80s, the band was intact, and they made record after record every year, hitting the road, making money on tour, spreading the word on Blue Oyster Cult. Unfortunately, I think the 80s came, MTV came, and it kind of was the end of Blue Oyster Cult for several reasons at that point. We're going to get into that with Martin here. But they are still a touring entity today. Bouchards are no longer with them. Alan Neer is no longer with them. But the folks they have in their band have been steady members for a long time. They still like to tour, do 60, 80 dates a year, at least, all around the world. And I just miss them here in Europe. But we're going to hear a bit about that on the show. So let's go ahead and jump into it. No more preamble. Let's talk about the great Blue Oyster Cult with Martin Popoff, right here on The Wolf. How are you today? Good, thanks. Yeah, it would probably be at this point, if I was living at home in America, I would point to your books on my shelf that I have, you know, but um, I honestly can't tell you which ones I have because when I moved to Europe, I didn't take my rock books with me, to be honest. With you. All right. So, sorry <laughs> about that, but... Uh, yeah, no worries. But, uh, you know, you're you're so prolific. I mean, are you... Are you the most prolific rock writer on the planet? I think so. I, I used to think Dave Thompson was, and maybe he still is, because I remember quite a while ago, he had 100 books out, right? And I thought, mm -hmm. oh, I, I, how does he do it? Does he have a massive team of guys and all this? But right. So I've got about 115 at this point. So I think he's kept going as well. So I don't know. It's it's probably either me or him. That is impressive. And I'm, I'm sure... Even if he isn't with us anymore, your father's proud because my father's like, you do this really well. You're good at this podcast. You should write a book, you know, because he's very old school. Yeah, and I'm like, you know, hey, dad, I'm, I'm, you you would read it. But I mean, you know, people my age yeah. don't read books that much. And people younger than me don't even know what one is unless someone puts it on social media. Right. So no, my it. dad's still still with us. And he actually even still goes skiing. And I I, I think of all the times my mom complains about uh, oh, dad will be on the ski lift riding up with someone and start telling people about my books and stuff. It's like, dad, they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's, he sounds like he's very proud of you. Yes. All right. Well, cool. Well, we'll get into this a little bit here. I mean, our show is, is is largely very autobiographical for me and Jackson. Like, how have we interacted with Blue Oyster Cult over the years? How did they come into our lives? Did we see them play? How do we like their music? All that kind of stuff. But let's start with that for you. I mean, you're from you're from Canada, yeah, but you're 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 from kind of southern like Toronto, Ontario kind of area. Is that true? No, I no? grew up in a small town way out west, Trail BC, Trail British Columbia, so oh, right okay. on the U.S. border, just above Spokane, Washington. So Spokane, Washington was the place we used to go and buy all our imports and New Wave of British heavy metal and all that stuff. Right, <laughs> go, nice. Go to big concerts because there was nothing around where I was because it's a town of ten thousand people. But uh, yeah, me and Blue Oyster Cult. That's an interesting one. I probably remember more with other bands uh, what was sort of first. But mm -hmm. so for me, it would have been uh, actually, yeah, I, I believe my first Blue Oyster Cult album probably would have been On Your Feet or On Your Knees as a new release. So I would have been 12. The live album. Yeah, the double live album, the first first live album. And so I definitely remember that. And I, I do have a, a strong memory of listening to that album over and over and over again and burning a ton of incense in my room. Uh, so I, I just remember that that was a heavy, heavy, heavy incense time. And I remember playing that album over and over and even thinking, am I getting, I'm, am I getting this album infused with incense? But uh, no, it didn't last. So Gotcha. And so, and what was it about that? I mean, it, was it the sound? Was it there? Uh, it was, it's kind of psych rock, heavy, hard, some of the hard blues, some of it's psychedelic. 
there's stuff that they play to this day, but then there's some odd things in those kind of first few albums. It was the first three albums, they're black and white period from which On Your Feet or On Your Knees is taken from. Isn't that right? Yes. And I do remember being somewhat frustrated with them and that sound and not loving it completely because it was a little too creepy and old. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at that time, as I was really starting to become a huge fan of, of this music, you know, I didn't want anything that had that the vestiges of of psych or you know them trying to be the heavy metal doors or whatever mm -hmm. you know they came from almost like even a grateful dead sort of past when they were called soft white underbelly and stock forest group right. and all that osaka but uh so you know at that time my favorite bands would have been more the likes of rush and nazareth and black sabbath and deep purple Okay. As I was getting that album. So that album, you know, it, it cheats in its heaviness by being a live album. So it's heavier than the black and white period album. Sure. Mm -hmm. And it's the heavier songs, generally speaking. But it was kind of creepy. It, it was it, it definitely had a dated vibe to it that that uh, just creeped me out a little bit. Interesting. Even back then it was dated. Yeah. For, for that, you know, I mean, the new the new modern shiny sounding stuff was basically get your wings toys in the attic and the first kiss and the second kiss and the third kiss and Ted Nugent. And, uh, you know, so Ted had, you know, the first Ted Nugent album out Nazareth albums, deep purple was pretty straightforward and pretty heavy, you know, so almost everybody else didn't have that psych, that psych element to them. Right. And then did you catch them on tour? Because they toured relentlessly and they toured with a lot of those folks that you just mentioned, Nazareth kiss, you know, Deep Purple, uh, Ted Nugent, all these people, maybe not Deep Purple, but all those guys like toured the hell out of, you know, with each other in the 70s. Well, oddly enough, I didn't see a lot of concerts because it was a small town and we'd mm -hmm. have to go to Spokane, Washington for concerts. But I did actually see Bloister Cult uncommonly often, which is twice. <laughs> um, so so we were on a family vacation in the in the big family van across the country, all the way across the country. I saw them in Poughkeepsie, New York in 1979. Wow. And then I saw them on the Fire of Unknown Origin tour in Spokane. So me and me and buddies went down. And so at that point, I would have been. Uh, uh, you know, uh, what is that? 18 years old. So, mm -hmm. so going down to Spokane, Washington with buddies to see a concert. And so I saw them there and yeah, yeah, that was first autograph I ever got. We actually stayed in the same hotel as the band and uh, I got Eric Bloom to sign a, an American $1 bill. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, here we're riding the elevator with Blue Oyster Cults. That's my first brush with ever meeting a rock star. How about that? You still have that $1 bill? I think I do somewhere. I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure where I've got it put though. Actually, yeah, I think I got it stuck in a photo album somewhere, yeah. Nice. I mean, did you bring that up to him when you finally, like, interview him? You say, by the way, in 1981, I did get your autograph on a $1. You know bill. what? I don't think I did bring that up with him. Um, I probably just totally forgot it. Yeah, it's funny. Eric, uh, I think Eric doesn't want to talk to me anymore because at one point we put in, you know, there was just one innocuous thing that Richard Meltzer said some pretty heavy things about, about them. And, and, and I did put that stuff in the books because mm. I was, you know, this is early on when I was doing these books, but at one point he, he said he was dealing drugs or something in 1969 or whatever. When, when Eric was, yeah, I mean, everybody was buying and selling a little bit of drugs. Uh, yeah, sure, yeah. It, it was a stupid little thing to complain about. Right. But I think, I think Eric took offense because Richard might have said he was a drug dealer, which, you know, right. wasn't. Right. Um, but, you know, Richard kind of uh, kind of can uh, exaggerate right. Over. So he took umbrage to that at one point later on when the book was out. And so I don't like what Richard said about me uh, in the book or whatever. And I might even take uh, taken it out in the subsequent. Uh, I think I did take it out in the subsequent edition or whatever, but. But, you know, along the way, also, everybody kind of disparages everybody else and, and takes these little little snipes at things. So, right. you know, when you're a rock star and you read a whole book on you, there's a lot you could take offense. <laughs> and they do. <laughs> and they do. And that's got to be interesting for you because you don't know what's going to set somebody off. I mean, you think it's like yeah. you said, it's an innocuous comment and they take it to heart. Yeah. And and there could be, like I say, any number of things, you know, over the years, I found out other times when when like you you do a review on someone and you go, wow, I thought I knew that guy pretty well. He's got a pretty thin skin, mm -hmm. you know, so that's happened a few times over the years as well. And we we're, we're learning that 
day by day. It, we're just starting to interview some of our rock heroes, and it's it's you know it's usually pretty grief. It's a little bit of fanboy mixed with what are you up to now and and that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, you, you have to tread. You know, I mean, you ask what you want, hold them accountable, but you also sometimes they say. We're not talking about that. Or I'm changing the subject. You just got to go with the flow. Let them do what they want to do, right? Yeah. The 70s were an interesting time. You know, we had Carl Palmer on the show. And he's like, you know, in the 70s, you could get anything on the radio. You know, DJs could play whatever they wanted. You wanted to make a 12-minute opus. You could do it. You know, and then the 80s, all that changed. It seems like the 70s were a time that between two things there's that there's the fact that djs were in control and you had the big am and now starting to emerge fm radio but because of the disillusion of the beatles in the early 70s and them all becoming solo artists genres start to open up so you get some heavier stuff like the deep purples and the sabbaths and the zeppelins and that kind of stuff but you also get this prog rock thing happening right with the genesis and the yes and the, you know, whoever else you want to throw in there, Gentle Giant, you know, however deep you want to go. So it, rock starts to really branch out in the 70s. And I don't know, it's kind of hard to fit Blue Oyster Cult in a box. Definitely. Uh, it, they are a hard band to describe. I mean, I think they've got they've got heaviness, pop, keyboards. They've got, uh, what is it? One, two, f- four different singers. Right. Um, you know, one of them sounds like Roger Daltrey a little bit. I think that would be Joe, but you've got Buck being really smooth and Eric having that sort of sarcastic sound and then Albert singing as well. You've, so you've got keyboardy songs. Lyrically, they're kind of going over everybody's head. They're the only band doing this whole conspiracy theory, the whole Imagino saga and bikers mm-hmm. and drugs and ufos and and all sorts of stuff so not a lot of bands doing that and every album so starting with agents of fortune the management gets them all like uh you know little tiac uh four track recorders to to work on demos at home so they start they start writing separately a lot as well and you know they somewhat aren't getting along or whatever and they're all creative so basically right. starting with that album they all come in with their songs and and uh you know, it's all over the place. So agents, inspectors and all these records, they got they got one of this and one of this and one of this and one of this. And uh, and yeah, it's it's impossible to put them a little bit, a little bit like a cheap trick uh, up here in Canada. Famously, they remind me a little bit of Max Webster. So so, you know, keyboards, heaviness, pop, uh, really intelligent, interesting lyrics. Um, so they're a bit like Max Webster up here, but I always, always do put them in that, that camp. Yeah. Cheap trick, Max Webster, Blue Oyster Cult kind of thing. But that's, I think that's the tough part is when people start writing songs on their own and then everybody wants all of their songs on the record. And that's when you start into the fighting and the, just the bad feelings of, well, this is not a great song. No, it just doesn't fit on the record. And everybody needs to have a little bit of an input. Yeah, for sure. And they, they always, you know, and wow. Yeah. I mean, maybe not way over uh, over other bands, but they did have extra material and they would rework songs and you hear, you know, fascinating stuff. Like when you, when you get the demos added to the, the discs as bonus tracks, you'd hear, you'd hear like the early version of fire of unknown origin. It doesn't mm-hmm. even sound like the same song at all, even though it's got the same lyrics, but no, it's melody, bizarre. the whole arrangement, <laughs> everything's different. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's pretty cool that way. They were a very creative band. They were, they were all, they all had a lot of input and they had a lot of talent. And you would think that, you know, you've got multi-instrumentalists in the band. You have all these singers. It's better to have four or five songwriters than just one or two. One would think, but you know, then it just kind of becomes, no, then there, there could be a lot of infighting and defining what is our sound. I mean, Eric, things most of the songs you know but none of the ones that get played on the radio really right those are all buck songs you know for the most part even though buck has a has always had a smaller percentage and didn't really sing that many songs on the first three records right but like you say it almost like kiss they have three records they do okay they're a good touring act they have a live album that does pretty well and then from there they up their game in the studio in the mid-70s yeah, good point. Yep, definitely. I, I think the whole thing about Buck being the hit writer thing is is 50% coincidence and 50% mm-hmm. he leans that way, right? I guess he's the popular guy or whatever, but they would try the different guys singing or whatever. And it's like, and there are a lot of pretty famous Eric songs as well. But uh, but yeah, it just kind of turned out that uh, 
you know, don't fear the reaper. And I guess burning for you are, are, the, are the big ones, right? Are the big ones. Right. And, and, and Joan Crawford was a bit of a hit Godzilla. You know, I, we just passed Halloween. You're going to hear that 50 times between October 1st and October 31st. Right. And I don't know. It's it, Jackson. How, cause look, we're, we're a little younger than you are. We're, we're children of the MTV generation. We're like 50 years old. So burning for you was a hit, you know, on early MTV, but they didn't play it a ton because those guys, they don't look like Duran Duran, you know, they, they, they don't look like men at work, you know, they're, they're kind of scary older guys from New York, right? We, we're not going to overplay them, but classic rock radio sure played the hell out of it. And they really still do. But so it's, you know, it's like Reaper, Godzilla, Blue Oyster Cult, I, I'm sorry, uh, burning for you. So then you want to go back and say, all right, well, look, if they could write these few songs that are awesome. They must have more. There must be deep tracks. There must be things that the A&R people missed out on. You know, so we go out and discover these things on our own. But it's, I don't know, that's just kind of the dichotomy to me. It's like they were this great live act that people would rave about, but then they wouldn't get their stuff played on the radio. And I guess it's just because they're different from themselves, let alone everybody else. Yeah, but, you know, we, we got to put it in perspective. Like, I know those guys are pretty cynical and they complain and they think, oh, we didn't we didn't get our just due. We didn't do that great. And it's like, well, a number one, you kind of went over everybody's heads with all this variety and all this interesting lyrical content. I mean, they're almost literally my favorite band lyrically. I always I always say them. And again, Max Webster, which lyrics are by Pai Dubois, who's not in the band, um, but also like Captain Beefheart, Clutch. So I have the I have these bands I love their lyrics of. But so number one, yeah, they, they have these this, these complicated things about them. But number two, you got to, you know, I, I always like remind those guys. It's like you guys did pretty darn good. You have a lot of gold records and uh, and yes. a platinum or two. You know, that the second live album, single live album, which isn't even very good, is one of their biggest selling albums that they ever had. One in um, evening. So so, you know, and they were they were a headline act for years and years and years. So uh, they I almost think I almost think that that band did absolutely as well as they could have been expected to do. Mm. That's an interesting point because they really didn't have the big radio hits. So it was fans who, like yourself, who enjoy the lyrics, who enjoy the deeper cuts. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Could they have done any better without the big singles? I mean, Reaper was huge, right? Reaper was huge, actually got in the top 20. Uh, It helped them tour, become a bigger touring band. And then what is it, five or so years later, they get Burner For You, which I think was supposed to be on Buck's first solo album and then the guys heard it like yeah. no 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 we need that one you, 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 you let us keep that one buddy but okay so so let's not forget though i i think secret treaty this off the top of my head but i think secret treaties is gold i think the live album's gold i think agents is platinum yep. i think specters is gold mirrors didn't certify cultosaurus didn't certify they do complain a little bit that they think Fire of Unknown Origin should be platinum. I mean, the lore around Blue Oyster Cult is that it's it's bubbling under. You know, at one point, there's this whole murky thing about the label has to care and go get your certifications and blah, right. blah, blah, and all that. But OK, so after that, they don't have any certifications, but some Enchanted Evening. Uh, I believe that might be even platinum, but it's at least gold. At least gold. Um, ETL Live. What is yeah. it's platinum? It okay. is. Some channel so, platinum. so they did fine. Uh, I don't think they have. Um, yeah, they don't have a greatest hits album. That's one. That's one thing they they um, I guess they dropped the ball on. This is definitely a band. Had they had a greatest hits album, it would have probably been platinum because that's hmm. a neat story that that there's a lot of bands out there that they have a greatest hits album everybody forgets about that's like diamond or double platinum for a gold band or whatever like there's a bunch of bands out there that have greatest hits albums that are their their biggest selling albums aerosmith for example has uh, those gems or greatest hits albums you go look at the certifications of aerosmith hits albums it's like wow i think one of those yeah. is diamond i believe i know that like might be. probably i would bet bad company is probably in the same boat yeah bad, bad company um they've they had that but they had a lot of multi-platinum records yeah i mean 10 for six was good but they had a lot of multi-platinum records leading up to that you're right they didn't have a a good or you know a decent uh greatest hits album maybe they do now but i remember being in high school thinking i like burner for you i like reaper i'm gonna go buy a blue oyster cult greatest hits album right because cds were 15 bucks which is like 40 dollars today it's like i can't you know i can't spend a lot but like take a chance that maybe agents of fortune 
is a great record outside of Reaper. You know, I want to get the greatest hits. That'll be my entry point yeah. in there. But they, all they had was this like CBS special products, the nice price where there's like, eight, yeah, nine there's or various songs. comps later. Right. But, yeah. but yeah, it, during the era, like, yeah, you're right. I mean, a Bloister cult hits album in 1981, just after fire of unknown origin, mm-hmm. platinum album. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, you know, Jackson, I'll let you uh, kind of put your because you're from the tri-state area, we'll call it right, where Blue Oyster Cult is very popular. So I'm getting them on on classic rock radio where I grew up in the Midwest. But then I also find this movie called Heavy Metal, which is an animated feature, which they kind of show at midnight at the same theaters. They might show Holy uh, Grail, uh, Bonnie Path and the Holy Grail, or maybe Rocky Horror on a Friday or a Saturday night at midnight. And I'm like, well, this is really cool. You know, it's like adult animation, that cool storylines. And they've got the best soundtrack I've ever heard in my whole life. I guess that they saw some of that or were, were asked to do some of that. And they came up with a few songs. Only one got onto the soundtrack and into the uh, into the film. But some of those songs got onto Fire of Unknown Origin. Uh, and, and I still, I really like the whole concept of it. Is there more that they haven't released around that? No, um, but you're right. I mean, I mean, I think I would say about a third of Fire of Unknown Origin feels like it could have been from the movie and some of that was written for the movie. There's a song in there called Heavy Metal, the black mm-hmm. and silver, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, Veteran of the Psychic Wars and yeah, a few others the packed on there. I think it actually makes that album. I I, I I go back and forth on my favorite Blue, o- Blue Oyster Cult album, but I, I almost think that that's my favorite BOC album now. I just love a, a lot of the, I love the, the tightness and the, and the sort of high mid-rangey Martin Birch sound on it. I love After Dark and, and Soul Survivor, some of the deep tracks on it as well. Um, but Veteran's really cool. Joan Crawford's really cool. So it's it's got some really good songs on it. But yeah, that that one, uh, you know, they're, they're over-enthusiastic thing, which is a good idea. You know, the movie comes to you and says, write some songs. You, you do a few extra and you get to use them, right? That's right. What about you, Jackson? I mean, look, are they just big in, in the greater New York area? You hear them on the radio a lot? Well, we were kind of in the same boat. I mean, we've, we've got the three big ones. And then I remember being in high school and listening to Don't Fear the Reaper, obviously. And then and then it was like, it, it, to your point, like they must have more stuff, but they don't have a greatest hits record. The The people that like them really like them. That you know, it was almost almost kind of like this. You know, if you were, you could listen to Black Sabbath, you could listen to Aerosmith, but if you really wanted to be cool, you listen to Blue Oyster Cult because they have you know the the lyrics and the themes and everything. But it was kind of hard to get into, and at that point in time, buying records was a serious cash outlay. So unless you really like them, you had to you had to kind of hang in there and either find a copy or uh, you know get one from somebody else. Uh, on a tape on a you know the the old maxell 90 minute one it was almost it was kind of like rush where i went to high school where there was like an acquired taste but even more so because they didn't have the same kind of hits best album covers in the business too though right i mean the album covers would suck you in because they were always really cool right correct yeah and and more on the lyric end you know the reason they had all these great lyrics is sandy perlman with the imagino saga to begin Mm -hmm. with the, the visionary of the band patty smith Richard Meltzer, you know, they're both literary people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Helen Wheels, eventually, they'd write their own lyrics. John Shirley down the road, uh, Michael Moorcock. So so they had this this army of this cabal of, you know, they, they were a literary band. They were just mm-hmm. a really cool band that way and uh, and wrote in a lot of uh, different cool directions. Yeah, the, the I was I was doing research for this thing and that Imaginos, the, the well, the record that became Imaginos was supposed to be like a three- record deal or something with uh with a solo record from alan and then they were like no it's not gonna happen or albert i'm sorry albert and it was taking so long that they just said no we've got to condense this but i'd be interested to know what was that that was going to look like as a three record set yeah i that's a long story the imaginos (laughs) i wrote a whole book on it called uh, flaming telepaths imaginos expanded and specified where i i like add way much more to it and it's a whole timeline thing but i you know i drop down on every nook and cranny of it so and that's that's been and i got to draw all these illustrations for it i put 39 illustrations in it and all this stuff but yeah all this alchemy and weird stuff so so essentially there were a bunch of songs along the way that fit the saga 
And, but they've always, they were always bringing up, Hey, let's do that imaginals thing one day. And then, mm-hmm. and then they got, then they got, you know, the stakes were higher and they were a big band and they were a headliner and they're having gold records and stuff. And it's like, ah, maybe a, a you know, a concept album's a little bit too risky at this point. So down the road. Yeah. The whole, I, you know, I, I, I don't recall really hearing tripleness out of it, but definitely doubleness out of it. Okay. Although now, now it, you know, it's, it could almost get that long, but so, um, so essentially they were going to put all of it together and, and really there, there had to be just like I did with the book. You have to extrapolate a lot because Sandy just basically had a bunch of notes. You know, Joe, Joe says a what, you know, the way it would kind of work is Sandy would have this binder sitting on an amplifier. And if someone's, you know, needs an idea or whatever, they'd saunter up to the Imaginals book and see if they could ah. find a good lyric in there and put a song <laughs> together. So the songs came down all over the place. Uh, but then, yeah, Albert's exiled from the band. Uh, and he essentially says, OK, Sandy, you and me, it's time to time to get this Imaginals thing sorted out. And and so there was the original demo version that you can hear on the Internet where, um, you know, that he, he tries to put in proper order and grab all the songs together and the odd, you know, unreleased thing like Gil Blanco County and girl that late, uh, made love blind and all this and, and put it all together. But then what happened was the label gets involved. They want the band back involved. They say this double album things also a little too risky, pare it right. down. And then what they did at the end was uh, because it's a very complicated, challenging story with a bunch of time travel and dropping down all over the place. Columbia also mixed up the order. So it's really hard to understand, <laughs> but come bring it all back forward from 1988 to 2020 i guess maybe for the first one so albert eventually um makes kind of like an acoustic you know quieter version of imaginos and imaginos too so albert has you know two records of this stuff with all the stuff in proper order put together so you could really see you know you could go buy commercially now uh, and read you know you could just read the two records together and, and really get the most accurate idea of what Sandy was going for. But, you know, part of the, the, the historical record now, the lore of what Sandy was going for, a good chunk of that is his explanations to me that are in my normal Blue Oyster Cult book, Agents of Fortune. So mm-hmm. now, now you got to combine what you got from the lyrics, the, the, the little story in the back of Imaginos, and what's in my book with Sandy really explaining in, in a lot more depth, because he's no longer with us. He can't do any more than he's done already. Him explaining in depth what it's about. And so a lot of the little clues about what he's after are in you know the odd interviews he did not just with me but there aren't a lot there's there's two or three or four out there in the world where he's he's talked about imaginos at a fair bit of length and it's interesting that you know become a manager but not just you're managing the band and, and managing their career but you're also kind of ma- managing their creative direction you know uh, usually that's very hands-off like you're the business guy if you're the manager or woman uh and and you're handling that side of things let the creatives be creative i'll make sure the trains run on time uh, but it's a pretty amazing dynamic. And he's with them for so long, basically discovered them in the late 60s and continued with them for so very long. And look, I know once we got to the 80s, then we started to have some band shakeups and some things going on. But considering there's five people in the band, they were together a long time through all their big hits, through all those gold, platinum and close records of the 70s and 80s, all those big tours. It was the five of them that whole time. That's consistency. You know, and, and that helped contribute to their legacy, I think. Yeah, you only lost Albert along the way. But like you say, you know, after after the big period anyways, right? They lose right. him at Revolution by Night. Actually, they lose him on the live album, Extra Trustial Live. That's right. And then and then they kind of lose Joe a little along the way. And then Imaginos, who the heck knows who's in the band? Right. Kind of everybody. But yeah, you know, and then the core is still there for a while. Alan dies eventually. But, you know, Eric, Eric, Alan and Buck are there for a long, long time as long well. Time. And they bring on new guys. It's yeah, it's a very stable situation. Now they got, you know, now they got good, excellent musicians helping them out, you know, as they get older or whatever. But uh, yeah, it was a very stable band for a long time. Hey guys, this is Ryan Condal, the executive producer, writer, creator of House of the Dragon, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast, and you should download and subscribe. Keep doing that. And the thing we forget about now is uh, back then that that schedule was just grueling. I mean, either you were on the road or you were putting out a new album and then back and forth. I mean, every year they had something out in those in the early years. 
I don't even know how they could keep that going, you know, having the ideas and then, you know, you put the record together, you go out on the road and then you get done. They're like, okay, it's time for another one. So yeah, to have that book of material to go back to must've been very helpful for them. You know, when you're struggling, maybe, uh oh, we need a couple more tracks. Let's grab the book and see what we can glean from it. As you're saying that I'm thinking, oh, what years did they have records out? So they literally had a record out either live or studio, right? From 72 through to 81 every single year, mm -hmm. and then in 83 and in 86 and in 88, and then they start spreading out, right? Heaven forbid is like 98 or something like that. 2001, they got Curse of the Hidden Mirror, and then just recently, the new one, Symbol Remains. So Right, but no, but you throw in extra, Extraterrestrial Live on 82, and then Revolution by Night, 83, you're oh, right. That's right. 72 yeah. so to 83, yeah, every right. single yeah. year they put I something out. That, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so, it, and it's got to be tough because look, bands have to adapt a little bit to the times. It's hard to say, we're just going to do our stuff because you listen to the radio, you see other bands out there doing things. It's only natural to absorb some of that. It's just, it's a problem when you said, ooh, that's a hit. We want a hit. Let's make a hit like that, you know, and to go from 72 all the way to 83, where now you're in this kind of new wave techno thing, like you, you got through punk and now you're in the new wave thing and you're a little older and it just doesn't fit. It's, you know, some bands will just have to like Neil Young, just like, I'm just going to dig in and do what I've always done. And eventually he comes out the other side. Okay. But a band like Blue Oyster Cult are like, okay, well, we had a platinum record and a gold record. I kind of like another one. The Columbia folks would like them to have another one. So let's start to monkey with this a little bit. And I think that's where they really kind of lost their way, unfortunately. Is that is that fairly accurate? Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, thinking about, so the Revolution by Night was a good record that could have been a hit, you know, a, on, a, on a deep, you know, finicky level, people complain about too much electronic drums or whatever. But basically that record seems like a, well put together, reasonable, sober record that could have been a hit in 1983. Club Ninja, on the other hand, also tries to be to fit in, but it's it's a bit of a botched, you know, dog's breakfast, as they say. It's it's not well, <laughs> well put together. You know, this is the hair metal era, and it actually kind of right. leans that way, but it sounds like fuddy-duddy hair metal. But then Imaginos doesn't try to hook up with anything right it's, it's just li it, literally it's them you know it's them almost doing their a different kind of truth van halen in a way um they're just kind of going back and saying okay let's let's roll the dice on this imaginos thing and it's heavy and weird and it doesn't really have any nods to you know hair metal's even bigger than in 88 so so mm. yeah out of all of those if you were going to be uh you know eric and buck on the uh on the porch in their in their rocking chairs complaining about something it's like you you could have made that a, a double or three times platinum record it, it it essentially had all the songs that would have been kind of perfect for 83 all right well let's you know uh, we're not going to bag too much on club ninja because we got to get into that it's it's i think it's the most interesting record some of from the tales of how they made it but but it, examine it a little bit here they've had some success with a couple of records they've had success with a couple of live records they get martin birch in to produce them on cultosaurus erectus erectus and fire of unknown origin they get another big hit with burning for you right Martin goes off. I think now he's in Iron Maiden mode and he's he's not working with them anymore. So they bring in Bruce Fairbairn, who is, yeah, he's trying to give them more of that journey, toto, polished AOR sound, which like you say, it sounds like it would be a good album for 1983. It just, for whatever reason, it just did not hit. Okay. So now they're coming back like, okay, well now we really, we really got to do something. And despite the fact that they've had this history of having all these great songwriters in the band and all the songwriters around them, like Richard Meltzer, like Patti Smith, like whomever, they start to buy all these songs, right? They start with, with even further afield outside writers, people who've maybe written bona fide hits, but that doesn't mean they're bona fide good Blue Oyster Cult songs, right? And so Club Ninja is just a mishmash of all these odd songwriters and odd song textures you don't even know who's playing on most of these songs right exactly yeah and, and you figure at that point in time if you're a huge fan of the band do you feel like now they're turning your back on you well now you're just trying to be like everybody else uh you're trying to you know to your point are you trying to sound like journey uh forget it this this isn't even the same band i grew up with yeah there's no alan songs on here you know or there's there's no you know obviously the the bouchards are gone but you know it's like what why aren't 
just Buck and Eric writing everything. You know, what, what's going on? Why do we have to buy, you know, from, from this Halligan Jr.? Why do we have Bob Halligan Jr. making these two horrible songs on the right? And that, that might have been good if somebody else did those songs, but Make Rock Not War and Beat Em Up are bad BOC songs, man. I got to tell you, <laughs> I, I like this record, but I skip those songs every single time. Yeah, they're they're the ones that the fans hate the most, that's for sure. It's a little bit like Let Go. Um they they've done a little bit of this before. Marshall Plan even on Celtosaurus I, I always kind of put down a little bit. Yeah, those two are are the worst. What what's really cool is uh we always thought up here in Canada that was really cool that it started with White Flags because that's from a a um a band up here called Legat and they had a double album and they were kind of like a modern prog like a neo prog band. Okay. So they had this double album called uh, Illuminations uh, Legat, ah. the Legat Brothers. So that's from them and that's a really obscure thing and it it's actually works quite well. Even though they didn't write it, it really sounds like a BOC song. It's it's a pretty cool tune on here. And then Everybody Loves Dancing in the Ruins. That's this record's, uh, you know, Burning for You. That could have right. easily been a big hit. But yeah, I, I, Perfect Water is is one that everybody loves from this Love record. It. It's, it's a good, you know, melodic and literary and interesting Bluish Occult song, little little creepy little little mysterious but the rest of it well spy in the house of night is also a little bit kind of like nicely aor-ish mm-hmm. but i've really never liked also when the war comes shadow warrior and madness to the method so all of those on the rest of, you know filling up the rest of side two after beat them up they just sound kind of stodgy clunky not very melodic the production takes over and just holds them down and beats mm-hmm. them up kind of thing. So yeah, those, those just seem, seem like, like brownout songs. They seem like, like, you know, tan songs on this record, even though they're trying to be a little bit uh, sci-fi ish, uh, a little bit imaginosi with them. But yeah, to me, to me, the successes are definitely white flags dancing in the ruins and perfect, perfect water, water and yeah. somewhat spy in the house of night. Well, and you can see in your book, in the, in the chapter you write on Club Ninja, Joe's like, Buck or Eric, why don't you play this? You know, why aren't you, you know, why don't you play the guitar? Why are we bringing in ringers to play the guitar? You're a great guitar player. Now it may sound it's perfect. You know, it might have all those Bob Kulik tones in it, but it doesn't have the swing of an ace or, you know, it doesn't have what Buck Dharma brings to the thing. It's like, if you're trying to get a hit that bad that you don't even want to play on your own album, that seems problematic to me. And the video, okay, look, I came to this album very late in life. Okay. It was maybe 12 years ago. A kid at the office that I worked at had been a college radio DJ. Right. He had all these songs on his computer. He's like, and he's like, just, just take them off my computer and you can hear. I'm like, all right, fine. I'm playing Blue Oyster Cult in there. And this song Dancing in the Ruins come on. I've never heard it. Okay, I never heard it when it came out back in the day. And I'm like, this is catchy. This is hooky. This is a pop hit. Why haven't I heard this song before? And then I go and look at the video and I'm like, okay, here's what happened. Some executive decided skateboarding is popular right now, right? The the rise of skateboarding was happening in America. So we're going to have this kind of post-apocalyptic Mad Max thing, but with skateboards. And that's going to get the kids into Blue Oyster Cult with this song, you know, that's, it's got all these great hooks in it. And I, I mean, some of that guitar stuff, I feel like it's really hard to play it live, at least play it exactly like it is on the record. Yeah, I, I don't really remember that, uh, that video off the top of my head. I'm going to have to go look at it again. I, um, but yeah, I, I, th- I thought it was a really good song. But, uh, you know, at this point, at this point, it just uh, it just seems like the label was more or less had lost interest. They they're probably ticked off how expensive this album is. The band's kind of breaking up. Yeah. They, and and they're, they they aren't, you know, a, as Max said, they're not really the, the you know, the video darlings. They don't they don't look great They're You know, everybody knows they're from a previous generation. And, you know, frankly, they're they're their golden period of, or at least, you know, they've been around in the public consciousness since since pretty much 1974, 1975. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, they're definitely of a pre- previous generation and uh, and there's a whole new generation of good looking hard rocking guys 
who've been, you know, relentlessly selling records now for three whole years. Uh, and they're all from close by MTV. They're all, or they're all from California. They're all in California. Right. And yeah, yeah with, with this record, just it's, it's not the right record. It's not the right band. Um, and the labels just kind of lost interest. Right. And that's gotta be really hard for somebody like this, where you've had, you've been together for a long time. You've put out these records and then to have the, the record company just say, yeah, we're, you're, you're uh, this, this industry has passed you by. We're not really that. We're not going to push this. We're not really going to do anything for you. We've got other bands, like you said, from the hot new hip bands. You can put out a record, but we're really not going to help you out with it. And they've lost so much momentum because it's, it's, right. you know, two, three years later and, and the other album stiff too. So, you know, they haven't really had a hit since 1981. Right. And, and that is too bad because in looking at this, I mean, back when they did uh, the fire of the unknown origin with Martin Birch, they had the co-headlining tour with black Sabbath, which I know they had problems in that, but that was, that's another topic to, to kind of, to fall off like that, to lose their way. I mean, you, you would always figure that until that point, they don't, they, they had gotten bigger with every record right more they, they've gotten more traction and then to just have the wheels come off like that was probably pretty stunning for them yeah that that black and blue thing was a big deal and and yeah they, they've been you know this is the the neat thing about a lot of these bands is even when they aren't selling a lot of records like your eye heap or whatever they're they're headliners they're, they're right. headlining all through the 70s and playing these these big big shows so you know they, they must have been making a fair bit of money on on the road uh, all along the way granted ticket prices were low and right. we don't know all the costs you know rock stars will always you know tell you the the you know the the terrible truth about how little money there is i guess to make out there but with blue oyster cult they I mean they were a working band selling a mm -hmm. lot of tickets for a lot of years back to what i was trying to say before dance in the ruins caught me as this like this is pretty darn good it's it's not blue oyster cult necessarily but it's a darn good pop song and then the video was just like ugh this is painful. Like you're not being yourselves. You basically let the record company and some style person say, this is what's hot. You got to do this. I always thought it was funny too, that like they had some scenes in there where they had some of the girls in the video hanging out with the guys in the band. And one girl's like, Hey Buck, can I kiss you? He's like, yeah, sure. She gives him a kiss on the cheek and she can say, yeah. Hey. I'm pretty sure that same girl ran over to the director at the end of the video. Like, okay, you're the one I really want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny stuff. Right. But they never really got the video thing. I mean, as, as big as song as Burner for You was, the video's not horrible because people didn't really know what they were doing in 80, 81. So it's okay. But like the Joan Crawford video, which was filmed like in someone's backyard in LA with some girls in Catholic school uniforms, like eh, that's kind of a weird one, you know? Like they just, they didn't translate, I, th I don't think very well into the video age. Well, yeah, I guess if you think about it, I mean, so MTV starts in the summer of 1981 and that's exactly when the door is closing on the Blue Oyster Cult. I mean, they, you know, they, the albums start spreading out and they aren't hits and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, so yeah, they just missed the video age. But, you know, as, as much as this album is maligned, the Club Ninja, like I said, we, we have some favorites on there, like Perfect Water, Dancing in the Ruins, Big and stuff like that. They do still play some of that stuff. I mean, just less than two weeks ago in Paris, because they played two shows back to back and, and they played both Perfect Water and Dancing in the Ruins one night, you know, uh, and, and I, I admire them that they really do mix up their set. A lot of folks who've been at it 50 years, you know, if they're going to do 15 songs, they know 16 songs and they might sub one in at the same spot every night. But these guys have a pretty big yeah. catalog and they, they do kind of hit it. And I, I think it was earlier this summer that they revisited all three of the first albums where they would play on one night. And I think it was three consecutive nights in New York. They played the first album in its entirety and then some hits. And then the next night they would do the tyranny and mutation or whatever in its entirety. You know, I'm like, well, not everybody can do that. And certainly not on back to back to back nights. These guys still have it, you know, it's, they never lost it. It's just the public's, kind of faded away from them at some point. Yeah, that's a pretty cool thing. I mean, they're, they're, like I say, they're they're grumpy, cynical old guys. And they're just trying not to be bored. I mean, they, they play they so <laughs> much, right? But it, it is a cool thing to do that. And, um, you know, it it shows their talent and their versatility at this age to be able to do that. Um, you know, Rush, Rush is kind of like that too. Rush eventually said... Let's just start yeah. playing everything. One right? of our very favorites. Um, and, and, you know, Bloister Cult, it's, you know, it's, it's neat when you do, when, you know, when you're sort of a, um, a cult band that a lot of, a lot of people love and you're, and you're literary and all this sort of thing. And, and they, you know, they're even like a biker band sort of thing. So, 
yeah, it's it's uh, it's neat to, you know, move into that. It just makes you even more of a cult band. It gives you more stuff for people to talk about when you when you start playing all the deep tracks. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because that if you like a band that not a lot of other people like, that just makes you like them more. Right. And then and then it, that's you wave the flag, you know, even harder for them, because, yes, you're right. Housewives don't like it and the kids don't like it. My coworkers may not like it, but I like it. Damn it. Uh, and that's kind of why we do our show, because there's bands we like that we need <laughs> other people to like. Damn it. And that's and we appreciate you being here to help wave the flag for Blue Oyster Cult. What's I, so you you kind of alluded to this earlier. I was going to ask you what your favorite BOC record was. It might be Fire of Unknown Origin. Yeah, I've often uh, we did a show of our our YouTube channel show the Contrarians uh, years ago where I I you know for years I've called Mirrors my favorite one, uh, and it's a very contrarian choice because a lot of people complain about Mirrors they find it too poppy or whatever. But um, you know one thing I'm I'm a big production guy. I really want to hear good production. I think it's the best produced album they ever had which is quite ironic because it's produced by tom Worman, who usually does mm -hmm. terrible productions um you know when, when you're talking about sort of like too mid-rangey and too cardboardy he has a lot of those ted nugent okay. cheap trick but for some reason that's a very high fidelity sounding album with great highs and great lows it's it's really good sounding it's even better that better sounding than the two martin birch albums which are you know martin birch has this characteristic where he pushes everything mm -hmm. into the mid-range different than tom Worman at his worst but um he likes that's so the high mid-range the tight tight bass drum sound right anyways so that's a great sounding album and it's got the vigil on it which i think is the greatest blue oyster cult song i don't think you can get right. any better than that we had a bar band in the 80s i we actually played that song cool. but yeah so but it is poppy but i'm fine with it being poppy so that's sometimes my favorite but yeah fire of unknown origin is amazing i've called specters my favorite before i've called cultosaurus erectus my favorite so yeah, and nothing else comes close. So it'd be it'd be those those four in sort of a tie. Fair enough. What about you, Jackson? What's what's the highlight of BOC for you? It probably, yeah, I would say that probably Fire of Unknown Origin is probably the the one that that hits me because it's the most commercial. Like it, it's hard for me to get into some of the some of the really obscure stuff because it takes so long, and I just haven't put the time in yet. So the, so that's that hits the closest to me or the closest home for me. I thought it was interesting. I saw an interview from I think 1992 with Eric Bloom talking about the band, and he did mention that according to him. Sting told him that he pretty much lifted Message in a Bottle off of Don't Fear the Reaper. And I said, no, not really. And then you think about it. Yeah, no, that's that's a lot the same. So it's interesting. They have interesting. they have kind of a wide ranging influence on other musicians. Even you wouldn't think, oh, that Sting listens to Blue Oyster Cult. Apparently he does and likes them quite a bit. So mm -hmm. I it, it's one of those. It, I think that's kind of the problem with this band. Maybe not the problem or the issue is you to get into it you have to put the time in you can't you can't just kind of float on top and listen to it you know in the car or you know whatever you have to sit there and get into the lyrics and get into all of the songs on the record and i think that might have been one of the one of the things that kind of held them back but it's also the thing that makes people still want to go see them in 2022 and to hear the deep cuts and to say, I can't believe they played whatever the track was that you heard that night. He's as beautiful as a foot off the first record. They're playing that now. Like, oh, Mistress, Mistress yeah, of the I Salmon mean, Salt. <laughs> they play stuff that's 50 years old you can't play she's as beautiful as a foot that's just too odd that's too deep a track no they're playing it all <laughs> over the world right now they like to work they still do like is it 80 shows a year 60 to 80 maybe 100 kind of depends on i've i've kind of been cheated out of blue oyster cult martin trying to see them over the years in 1992 i was living in louisville kentucky they came and i was going to go see them and i but I was underage, so I couldn't buy beer. Uh, and so I'm just like sitting there waiting for them to come on. And we wait and we wait. And it's nine o'clock and they're not coming on. And it's 10 o'clock and they're not coming on. At 1030, somebody comes up and said, uh, yeah, the bass player got lost in Cincinnati. Uh, and we think he's on the way now, you know. So eventually they started <laughs> the show at midnight. But I was with my friends who had like straight jobs. So like, no, we got to go. We, we, we were not sitting here till two in the morning waiting for them to play Reaper. This is ridiculous, you know. For the record, I, I didn't just see them the two times. I mean, I did see them later a bunch of times to 88 and 2000s and a, a little biker bar in niagara falls so and they're always good right so. oh yeah absolutely yeah and and like you say i mean often often deep tracks and maybe the the guitar army thing or whatever and uh yeah and buck buck as a guitarist is a really interesting sort of guitarist i i don't know how, how to describe him i mean it's it's very mm -hmm. fluid it's very musical 
very melodic. Um, there's even a little bit of Ted Nugent to what he does, I, I think. Hmm. Um, but yeah, he's definitely a guy. He's one of these guys who has a style all his own, but he's not like one of the dozen or so that has a style really, really, really all right. his own. You have to really be a music guy to, 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 to like identify, you know, what is it about his style that gives it a unique sound? It's, it's not, it's not a super obvious one, right? Well, and they're literary references. I mean, we, we do it because uh, I was based in the UK before I was here. We've done a lot of prog rock because that's a very British subgenre of rock and roll. It's also kind of thinking person's music, right? It's it's not just ACDC. Not that there's anything wrong with ACDC, but it's not just straight ahead Rocky. It does kind of make you think about that kind of stuff. So they are big with other musicians and other thinking persons. But I think that's what kind of holds them back in America is that they're kind of too smart. And, and, and it's, yeah, yeah, yeah in this day dense. and age, being yeah. smart is apparently a bad thing, especially on election day. <laughs> but the next, okay, so finally, I'm in London. Deep Purple is playing the O2 and who's opening for them? Blue Oyster Colts. So I'm like, yes, get me tickets. I'm going, I'm finally going to check both those boxes off. Well, then COVID comes and it gets delayed by a year. Then it gets delayed by another year. And then when they finally show it, I have moved out of London, right? I've moved to Amsterdam. It's like, I can't go back to the show. Now, here's the thing. Deep Purple is not just touring England. They're touring Europe, too. So I'm like, okay, when they come to Amsterdam, I'll see them. Well, they're touring with Jefferson Starship. I'm like, uh, I want to see BOC. They did play Brussels, which is a two-hour train ride away about six days ago. But, you know, I take care of my daughter. I got to get her up for school and get her gym bag ready and get her food. It's like, I can't take a two-hour train ride spend the night, come home at eight. And so just tell those guys next time you talk to them, just play Amsterdam once in the next two years. That's all they got to do. I will see them. I'll be so, so happy. I don't know, man. You know, you know, I think, I think we over, we over romanticize going to see a band live. I mean, just turn on your YouTube and you can watch every class of Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> like, okay. When, when someone tells you their great story about being there, it's like, well, I just saw, I just saw their 1972 show, you know, I, I I'm I'm not a big live guy, but you're right. I mean, you you got to see these bands at least once or whatever. But I'm I'm famously known for like once I've seen a band two or three times, I never need to see them. That's again. interesting. I, or or I could let 15 years yeah, go by. That's cool. Well, look, you've got a couple of big books coming out next year. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about where they can find you online, social media, and, and some of the cool projects you have coming out soon. Yeah. So all my books set, you know, I, I'm a big mail order guy of my own books. That's my main income really is buying my own books from my publishers or or the odd ones that are self-published. So that's martinpopoff.com. I sign them all and send them out here. There's PayPal buttons for Canada, the States, international. So there's Bluish Occult, a visual biography, which is a coffee table book on the band. There's the normal book on the band, Agents of Fortune. Uh, the Bush Cult story, I think it's called. And then there's this wacky, wacky flaming telepaths, Imaginos yes. expanded and specified. Uh, the recent ones are the, the my old Alice Cooper book just got broken into two trade paperbacks, uh, one on the original band, one on the solo years and best book I ever wrote just came out, but it's also not much to look at. It's just kind of a trade paperback, but it's Lively Arts, The Damned Deconstructed, where I go through every single damn song wow. and just a you know, 400, 500 word analysis of every single damn song. And then, yeah, the, Bow the Bowie was recent. That's the plushest looking book I've ever had out. So, yeah, that's about it. Next year, um, you know, what, you what can Floyd I say that coming, uh, right? is, I know is announced? Yeah, the Pink Floyd is announced. So that's uh, that's a 50th anniversary of Dark Side of the Moon book. There's a 50th anniversary of... Quadrophenia. Oh, right, right. Yes. And there's ACDC at 50. And uh, yeah, which is the Bowie's called Bowie at 75. And it's in a nice slip case with felt and neon colors and screen printing and all this stuff. So that, that's really nice. So yeah. Martinpopoff.com for all that. Not to mention your podcast, uh, History in Five Songs. Uh, which has some amazing yes, I got the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so 176 episodes of that. Haven't missed a week yet. Half hour, uh, little 30 second clips of the five songs that are the example of. So that's History Five Songs with Martin Popoff. And then we've got our YouTube channel, The Contrarians. That's amazing. Well, I, we really appreciate your insight here. And please keep writing. I know you will. And hey, you want to come back on when it's time to to pub one of your new books that's out next year. We can go deep on ACDC. We can go deep on Dark Side of the Moon. You know, we're right. we're happy to help out where we can. Sounds good. Yeah. Glad, glad to talk about ACDC for an hour. Easy. Yeah. easy. Very easy. Be a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Jackson, you have any parting uh, thoughts or shots for Mr. Martin? I mean, I'm just looking at this website now, and I mean, all of this looks really good. 
I mean, it, and you've got some, the, the cool part too, is you've got some, I don't want to say obscure stuff, but a little off like the history of motorhead. I mean, it just really interesting stuff. If you're a fan of rock and roll at all, you're going to find something that you want to, you want to read about here on uh, martinpopoff.com. It's a lot more obscure than motorhead. There's a Max Webster. There's an accept. The accept is out of print. Um, UFO. A, who else did we do? A UFO there. Merciful Fate. That one's done well. Unfortunately, okay. that just went out of print as well. Uh, Angel and Sweet and Montrose even. Yeah. Riot even. Yeah. There's there's all your obscure ones. I was going to say, God, Christmas is coming up. Get over there and get some gifts for your uh, your favorite rock and roll fans. Have you ever thought about doing one on Anvil? Canadian band. Not a whole, well, they, they did, they did the great full, full on book, but I've interviewed mm -hmm. those guys a bunch of times. I, so I I've done these short, uh, just, uh, well, there's the long story, but there, there's an old series of books I did, which most are out of print called Ye Old Metal, which was, you know, one, one album chapters on just bands that I didn't think I'd ever do a book on, but I've also continued that on where you can get eBooks for 99 cents of all these one you know, I, I've got 50 of those over at Zunior.com. And the reason I bring that up is Anvil is one that I've been meaning, you know, there's both of the two classic albums. I've got enough to do, you know, a full 5,000 word or on both of those. So I got to look at the way he days. just talks about 5,000 words, Jackson. Like how long would it take <laughs> the two of us to read 5,000 words? And he just cranks these things out all, all so over long. the place. He's prolific so and talented. Long. We appreciate you, what you do and keeping rock alive for all of us, man. Thanks guys. Very cool. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Thanks, we'll Mark. Talk to you later. Have a good one. Thanks. All right. See ya. Bye. -bye. Yeah. Bye now. Super guy. Nice guy. Very knowledgeable. Is he? Oh, and I mean, just the, the he's and he's all over the map here too, which is really cool. It's not just the same kind of three bands know. that everybody knows about. Yeah, like the the damned, like five hundred words on each damn song. I mean, I'm probably not going to read that, but if you were a fan, it would be fantastic. You know, and his show is great too. He's like, you know, I was just listening to one before we came on with him. He's like. Top five concept album misses, you know, like it's great to celebrate the wall and, you know, the, the stuff that works, you know, Tommy or whatever. It's like, but what about Tales from Topographic Oceans? I mean, it's epic, but did anyone really like, you know, kind of thing? And, uh, you know, the, the Elder certainly struck out with Kiss fans back in the day, you know, I was like, and so he's, he's, he's got some really interesting topics and then he'll have five songs that kind of epitomize what he's trying to get across. It's a pretty cool show. Yeah. So definitely check that out. Yeah. I one or two about the, the epics, you know, the miss you, you have this great concept. You think it's going to be, I mean, obviously the, the gold standard is Tommy or the wall. And then, yeah, it just, for whatever reason, it just falls flat. You think, wow, did I, I thought this yes. was so great. And it was also interesting when he talked about like lamb lies down on Broadway. He's like, now people like the album, but I don't think they like the concept. The concept of this kid rail in New York City didn't really hit with people, but because the songs were shorter and they mm -hmm. were melodic and there's some great work on there from every member of the band, people like it and they kind of- It almost like it overcomes the the Right, and they look at it with rose-colored glasses because like because it was Peter Gabriel's last thing with Genesis and Steve Hackett was finding his way in the band, you know? So it, it, mm. they, they romanticize it a little bit because of what happened afterwards. But, you know, it's not played on American radio and it's not like Puerto Ricans in New York all have the lamb lies down on Broadway because this is a story about them. Not even close, you know, so it's, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's cool. It's very thought, very well thought out, very conceptual, not just like, hey, dude, remember when we used to listen to Guns N' Roses? Yeah, let's let's do a show on that, which, which is basically our show. Yeah. <laughs> Many thanks to our special guest, Martin Popoff, coming on the program, talking about Blue Oyster Cult, a band that he has interviewed, a band that he has literally, literally written the book on, BOC, has really written more than one book on Blue Oyster Cult. He's got Agents of Fortune, the Blue Oyster Cult story. He's also got Secrets Revealed. Of course, he was talking about the, the book he did on Imaginos, their 1988 concept album that had been in the works for many years. We talked about a little bit on the show here. Can't thank Martin enough. And if you want to check out one of his 115 books, go to martinpopoff.com. That's P-O-P-O-F-F.com. As it is time for the holidays, time to get books for that rock fan of yours. 
Martin Popov's got a lot of them. In fact, in his signature, it even says, hey, check out martinpopoff.com for info on my 115 books, including recent ones on, yes, Dio, UFO, Nazareth, and Uriah Eat. A lot of hard rock and prog rock gods there that we have talked about on this show, even had members of those bands on this show. So check that out. You can also go to martinpopoff.ca for drawings of rock stars, fake ads, and the 39 Flaming Telepaths illustrations from that book on Imaginos he was talking about. One question I regretted uh, not asking Martin was about the big hit, Don't Fear the Reaper. A lot of people know that in the 70s, there was a single edit version of that song that really cut out the big wicked solo right in the middle of it. Had the haunting refrain, but it just kind of skips over the solo and comes right back to that refrain. So instead of being like a five-minute epic, it's like a three, three-and-a-half-minute song. And it always upset me when I hear it on the radio. I'm like, is this the good one? Is this the one with the solo? Is it? Oh, it's this short single edit. You know, it was around that time that the record company tried to get the Eagles to edit Hotel California down. It's like, all right, take out that wicked guitar solo, the dueling guitar solos between Joe and Don at the end. But they stood the ground. They said, no, no, we're not going to do that. And it ended up working out for them. I did ask Martin about it afterwards. He said, you know, there's really no story to that as far as I remember. They were just fine with it because they needed a hit. They needed to get something on the radio. And if taking out the solo was going to help them do that, then they were fine with it. I guess it's just a matter of choice for DJs. Do they want to play the real Don't Fear the Reaper with the big Buck Dharma solo in it? Or they just want to have the nice glossed over, yeah, the housewives are like this. It's nice and short. It's It doesn't have that crazy hellacious solo in it. They want to play that version. That's up to them, I guess. But thanks, Martin, and thanks for indulging my BOC questions and my fantasy of finally seeing them one day. I know it will happen at some point. And all my little questions about Club Ninja, which is a much maligned and yet still revered piece of their catalog. So as usual, folks, we want to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You have got to let us know. You email us uglyamericanwerewolf at gmail.com. You can tweet us or DM us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. Check us out wherever you get your podcast, be it Spotify, Apple, iTunes. Good Pods has been very good to us. You see us in the top 10 of their music lists all the time. Give us a nice review if you're thinking about it. It just helps us get more listeners like you, more rock and rollers around the world to listen to the show. We appreciate it. Of course, we appreciate all of our friends at Pantheon Pods. That includes Mr. Martin Popoff. And, of course, our sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Go to RareVinyl.com for all your vinyl needs. They've got great first editions. They've got great rarities. They've got it all in great shape. And if you use code PODCAST, you can save 10% off not only your first order, but every order you make with them. Coming to the end of the year here, guys, we're going to do some album reviews that have celebrated big anniversaries this year. We're going to have a couple more special guests on before the end of the year, but we want to know what you would like to hear about. We want to know the albums and the bands, the concerts, the DVDs, the books, the rock properties that you want to hear more about. And again, email us at uglyamericanwerewolf at gmail.com. So next week's show will be a bit of a surprise, maybe to you, maybe to me, maybe even to Jackson. But until then, rock and rollers, to all of you all around the world, be cool and stay safe.